0: Very good to be here, to be with you all. Um, I get very weary when I jump into a London taxi and the cabbie asks me what I do for a living. Um, And I hear intoned in an omniscient way, uh, rather like a mantra in almost the same form of words every time, religion has been the cause of all the major wars in history. Um, This has become, uh, this belief has become central, I think, to our secular consciousness. But it's a very odd remark. Uh, The two world wars were clearly not fought for religion, but for secular nationalism. Mm. Um, And experts uh, in terrorism tell us that whatever the motivation for an atrocity Terrorism is always inescapably also political. It's about grabbing power, changing power, trying to force a regime to change a policy. Uh, but, uh, and military historians tell us that we never go to war for a single pure reason. There are always multiple interlocking uh, issues involved a territorial, political, social, cultural, uh, and above all, the most popularly, the economic, the competition for scarce resources. And yet, uh, we keep um, chanting this mantra that sees religion <coughs> as uh, something that is inherently explosive, uh, that if you sort of drop it into a formula there'll be some kind of uh, horrible impact. And it must, therefore, be kept separate from public life. Now, my argument is not at all that religion is not at all implicated in some of the events that we're seeing at the moment, but simply this, that it is never the sole cause nor even the chief cause. And that unless we uh, really try to look at all the the factors involved, we're not seeing our... Uh, situation in this very dangerous moment of history in the cl- with the clarity and rational uh, objectivity that we need at this time. We need cool heads. Part of our problem is that in the West during the 18th century, we developed a very peculiar understanding of religion. Uh, re- we see, tend to see religion these days as something that is separate from other human activities, that is often associated with a supernatural God and has a clear uh, set of beliefs and uh, uh, practices. Um, But no other culture has anything like this. Uh, And it would have seemed very odd indeed to most Europeans before about 1700. Um, Words in other languages that we routinely translate as religion, such as din in Arabic or dharma in Sanskrit, invariably have a larger frame of reference, a more inclusive frame of reference, Mean it stands for an entire way of life. Uh, the Oxford Classical Dictionary says quite firmly that there's no word in either Greek or Latin that corresponds to the English religion or religious. Uh, religio, uh, which, which the source of our, of our English word, uh, meant an obligation, something that was absolutely incumbent on you to perform but that could be a business duty obligation or a family duty, as well as a duty to the gods. Uh, Later on in the Middle Ages, when people talked about religion or religio, they meant monasticism and a monk. Uh, And this term, religio, distinguished the monk who lived in a cloister um, from the uh, secular priest who lived in the Saeculum, the world. So, um, why do we do this? So, before the modern period, religion wasn't an activity that was separate. It simply permeated all activities. Uh, Why do we do this? Because we human beings need meaning in our lives where dogs, as far as we know, don't spend a great deal of time agonizing about the canine condition or the plight of dogs in other parts of the world. We do. Um, And we we, we become, we've got these forward-thinking brains, uh, analytical brains, and we become very depressed. We can fall very easily into despair if we can't find some value, ultimate value in what we're doing. And uh, the various religious exercises uh, that, w- that were performed um, <clears throat> were a, meet- a way like art. I see religion basically as an art form that helps us to find meaning in the tragic conditions in which we frequently find ourselves um, so try- before seventeen hundred therefore, at trying to take religion out of politics uh, would have been like t- trying to take the gin out of a cocktail. The two were so thoroughly permeated uh, that they, they were inseparable. And um, historians will tell us that before 1700, it was conceptually impossible for people to separate the two. It's hard for us to, to see this. Uh, because uh, we are, our secular consciousness is, is so attuned to seeing religion as separate. And there's many advantages. This is not a plea for a theocracy. Um, there are many advantages to secularism, not least because it, uh, has, it tends to liberate religion from the apparatus of government, which is always uh, unjust. Uh, and the state is uh, as as, we're, as terrorist experts tell us, if we think of terrorism as being uh, who, who, who the killing of innocent civilians uh, terrorism apparently is as difficult to define as religion, um, then the state has always been the biggest killer of civilians and remains so to the present time um, now if we can persist in seeing religion in this way as the cause of all the major wars of history and fastening onto this, uh, then we're going to miss some important aspects of what's going on. Uh, let's just look at briefly at two very recent events. First of all, Paris uh, in January this year. Now, uh, this was inevitably seen as, as understandably, as uh, irrational, uh, fanatical devotion to the prophet, uh, which made people quite unable to appreciate our uh, concern for freedom of expression, freedom of speech. Um, But al-Qaeda said that they backed that hideous atrocity, this crime. And al-Qaeda always has a political agenda. Uh, Bin Laden uh, was always quite upfront uh, about his political concerns with Saudi Arabia, with Western foreign policy in the region, and with Palestine. Um, And for al-Qaeda what their aim was is to create a clash of civilizations. And um, the sight of all those leaders marching uh, piously together with linked arms for freedom of speech will be a wonderful recruiting tool for them. Uh, It will show the West marching against Islam, not as it was, but that's how they will interpret it. This was—they were orchestrating a clash of sacred values: freedom of expression and freedom is a sacred value for us. That doesn't mean it's supernatural. Again, uh, we, you know, our, our rather bowdlerized notion of religion makes us all see things in terms of the supernatural, uh, which is odd—an odd way of looking at it, always. Um, so. Um, so, but some, something that is sacred to us is something that is so inviolable, so central to our identity and way of life that it's absolutely non-negotiable. And for us, freedom, freedom of expression, is one of those sacred values. Um, and so the... Uh, Al-Qaeda was saying, you attack our sacred value, the prophet... We'll attack yours. How does it feel? Now, it was, um, that I did notice, however, that the coverage focused entirely on Charlie Hebdo, and there was practically no detailed discussion, in the popular press at least, of the supermarket. Even though the uh, the hijacker there specifically said that he was acting on behalf of the Palestinians. This immediately brings in a political element, to, to this, which we weren't going into in the same depth um, as, as, as this... Uh, piety for freedom of expression. It was. Uh, I'm often hearing that Muslims can't really take part in the modern world because they didn't have an enlightenment. Um, and uh, our 18th century enlightenment was indeed a momentous moment in our history and, and in many ways very valuable. But it had its blind spots and while I was looking at... Uh, you know, it, it took place against the backcloth of the French Revolution uh, with its cry for Liberté. Uh, but uh, Enlightenment freedom, which was, it was an Enlightenment value, uh, was only for Europeans. Uh, the founding fathers of the United States... Uh, who were deeply influenced by the Enlightenment ideals, had no problem about owning slaves, even though they said that all men were created equal. Um, Jefferson, uh, gave his, when he was president, gave his orders to his minister of war to say that the Native Americans were a barbarous people who must either, as he said, be exterminated or driven across the Mississippi to dwell with the wild beasts. And John Locke, um, the apostle of toleration and the liberal state, who's first, the first philosopher to separate religion and politics, uh, said that the indigenous peoples of the New World had no property right to their land And that if they were, they opposed European uh, encroachment, they could be fought and killed. Uh, He also said that that in the liberal state, there could be no toleration of either Catholics or Muslims. And that a, um, a master had absolute and despotical rights over his slave, which included the right to kill him at any time. And so, while we are justly proud of our Enlightenment legacy, we must realize that it has, and it was with that, it was with Locke's attitude that we British went into our colonies. Um, and had we treated our uh, subjects in the colonies with uh, the sort of compassion, uh, the, the, the golden rule that we were speaking of earlier I doubt we'd have be, ha- be having so many uh, political problems today so um, and I was also incensed to see this or these pious pe- leaders fight marching for liberty I'm, and, uh, and um, some of them including our own Prime Minister had for headed countries that had for decades supported regimes in Muslim-majority countries that denied their people any freedom of expression. And this was not lost at all in the uh, the Middle East. I was speaking in Jordan shortly after all this, and this was precisely what what people were saying, that we have a sort of a double standard. Let's just have a quick look at ISIS. (laughs) ISIS. Again, uh, you know, uh, in America, uh, we, we, there, there, there are, the, the rhetoric is now, I think, worse than it was after, immediately after 9 11. Um, and um, people are saying, "Well, with ISIS, you see the true face of Islam." Uh, and yet, uh, it's, it's known that the, a lot of the core leadership of uh, ISIS is secular. Uh, it was born from the uh, insurgency that developed uh, as a result of the British and American-led occupation of Iraq. Um, and many of the leaders, current leaders, were members of Saddam's disbanded army, uh, which means that they were secular socialist Bartists. Uh The French uh, um, hostage who was released after um, 10 months being held by IS, said that the discourse of his captors was remarkably secular and that when the hostages actually asked for a copy of the Quran, nobody had one handy. And uh, uh, an editor, in, uh, for, for, a journalist for Foreign Policy magazine, held discussions in Jordan with uh, 15 IS supporters and he said they never once raised the topic of religion and that not one of them got up for the call to prayer. Um, in, now, in Jordan, you can't miss the call to prayer. It's absol- In Oman, it's absolutely deafening. Um, but they were able to talk solidly right the way through it. Now, certainly, uh, religious uh, enthusiasm is bound up with all this. Uh, but again, we need to look at uh, th- th- that cocktail again, the, se- the, 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 the mixture with what we would call the secular, if we want to see the, the, the whole... Uh, the whole whole picture clearly and if you look back in history too you see the same cocktail the crusades is something that everybody always raises their heads about and certainly religious passions were involved a lot of them very odd religious passions but I've just come from the world parliament of religions and believe me there is a lot of really dotty ideas going around today uh, extraordinarily Uh, And and a lot of those were certainly current at the time of the Crusades. Uh, But when Pope Urban II called the First Crusade in 1095, uh, he had also a very uh, coldly political aim, which was to, number one, to extend the power of the papacy into the Eastern world, uh, especially the Orthodox Eastern Orthodox world, which had uh, not so long before rejected the, the supremacy of the Pope. Also, he was declaring himself, the Pope, to be the, the political leader of Christendom as well as the religious head, if you could separate the two. Uh, it was the prerogative of the kings to summon a war, and he was preempting them, calling this massive offensive to the Middle East um and it, 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 remarkably uh, by the end of the crusading period uh for it it was far more important what political impact a crusade had for a le- one of the leaders at home in Europe than what actually happened in the holy land as 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 time went by uh the uh the Uh, crusades became far more, as we would say, politically and secularly driven. What interests me about the crusades is the response of the Muslims. Now, I'm always being told that uh, uh, jihad is in a Muslim's blood. You know, they just hear hear that call and out there they are swords uh, at the ready. Um, Now, so... After the first crusaders in 1099 descended upon Jerusalem, the third holiest city in the Muslim world, and in two days slaughtered the uh, uh, Jewish and Muslim inhabitants of the city, (coughs) Uh, the chroniclers tell us that 30,000 people were killed in two days. Now, you always have to be skeptical about numbers in ancient documents but it is true that five months later when one of the chroniclers Fulcher of Chartres who was I think resident in Antioch came to spend Christmas in Jerusalem as he approached the city the stench of rotting bodies was uh took his breath away there were so many bodies that the crusade the the crusaders in the place had not had time to bury them in two days, the Crusaders had turned this thriving uh, cosmopolitan city into a stinking charnel house. Now, the Arab chroniclers, contemporary chroniclers, were absolutely horrified by the Crusades. They'd fought all the great powers of the, at the time, for of the region, for uh, for centuries, but always within uh, clearly defined limits, what we'd call the Hague Conventions. Uh, but with the Crusaders, they, they, they were horrified that the the gloves were off, uh, and uh, they said they they killed everybody they saw, holy men, children, women, old, the elderly. Quite against the canons of the of, of, of the of the region, and then um, yeah, think of the, the, the chroniclers. So, so you you would expect though that given that this was happening in in such a holy city, that is and nine uh, eleven would look pathetic to the massive riposte. Uh, Not a bit of it. Um, For the Crusaders established five colonies in the region. Uh, They were our first uh, Western colonies. And uh, the local emirs went on fighting one another for territory and uh, wealth uh, as they had been doing for ages, and they made treaties with the Franks against one another. For 50 years, there was no concerted response. And finally, when first Nur ad-Din and then Salah ad-Din, uh, tried to get the jihad going and said, these people have got to go, it took them uh, some 30 years after that to revive the jihadi spirit. Um, it was hard work. Uh, the jihad spirit was dead in the region. It's never entirely left the region, but it was reborn as a result of a sustained assault from the West. Now, another great uh, chestnut of the Holy War, of course, are the so-called wars of religion of the 16th and 17th century. And it was said that it was thought, and this was, this was the considered opinion of people like Hobbes and Locke, uh, that the, these wars had been entirely caused by the uh, religious quarrels, theological quarrels of the uh, Reformation. Um, And certainly, again, uh, these passions were definitely there. But if that had been all these wars were about, you would not expect to find Catholics and Protestants fighting on the same side. But, in fact, they often did so, and as a result, fought and killed their co-religionists. And the last part of the Thirty Years' War was fought fought between Catholic France and Catholic Spain. This was also a war between two different sets of state builders. On the one side, you have the uh, Ottomans who wanted to create a trans-European empire on the... Uh, not the Ottomans, I beg your pardon. You have the Holy Roman Emperor who wanted on the Ottoman model to create a transcultural, cultural uh, trans-European uh, uh, empire. And on the others, you had the German princes and monarchs who wanted to build sovereign, independent states on, on the model of the strong states uh, developed in France and England. And that's, that's in, in effect, what resulted. Uh, and what w- would result from this would be eventually uh, the, the, the modern, secular, sovereign state. Now... The first secular state in Europe was of course France we come back to France again after the French Revolution and one of the first things that the uh, the French uh, National Assembly did was to uh, confiscate all church property and put it at the disposal of the state to pay off the national debt it so secularism begins with an act of now, uh, it's worth just mentioning as a sideline, many of the secularizing reformers in the Middle East after the, uh, after the, 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 the colonists left uh, took a leaf out of the books of the French and also took away uh, stipends from the clergy, impoverished them, humiliated them, in, tried to sideline them in the same way. Uh, so it was an act of aggression now, um, what is interesting is that no sooner had the French got rid of the Catholic Church as they thought than they invented another religion the nation uh, in the same year as the reign of uh, the reign of terror in which the French revolutionaries uh, publicly beheaded some 17,000 men, women, and children. Uh, again, it rather dwarfs the beheading, hideous beheading we're seeing with ISIS. Um, in the same year, they also had a series of extraordinary festivals. Uh, it was... Uh, that the, 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 This phenomenon became known as Festomania. Uh, there were bizarre scenes whereby there would be a giant statue of La France with 12 breasts in which she decanted uh, water into the uh, cups of the 12 el- revolutionary elders in a sort of holy, bizarre Holy Communion. And they were drinking from, from the, the, the milk of the nation. Then they'd go on, and in the next square, they'd see a giant statue of Liberté uh, as sort of Hercules. And uh, people said that there was a really religious uh, spirit to to these extraordinary festivals. Now, if you think that the sacred is something for which we are prepared to die, in some sense, uh, the nation has replaced God. Because it's no longer now respectable to die for your religion, but it's admirable to die for your country. And uh, nationalism uh, has become a sort of religion. Early, very early on, Fichte, while Napoleon's troops were invading Prussia, said that it was with the nation that would give us immortality. Because it had been there before us, and it would be continued afterwards, it was the nation which would give us a sense of, of the meaning that people had, sim- had seen in uh, conventional Catholicism before. Um, and you know, uh, on the last night of the proms, um, when uh, you know that we're seeing Rule Britannia. Um, and uh, the, the, this is relayed on huge screens in Hyde Park and in all the uh, major cities of the UK, everyone's singing Land of Hope and Glory and Rule Britannia. It's all a complete uh, fiction, of course, because it's a long time since Britain has ruled any waves at all. But nevertheless, our hearts swell within us. Uh, we, a lump rises to the throat we feel proud to be British and, um, and, 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 and we get us that sense of uplifted ecstasy that perhaps people got from religion in the old days, a sense of meaning and now we know what we're standing for. An American um, uh, uh, nationalism, deeply religious with the hand on the heart and God bless America and uh, uh, the, you know the, the, the anthem, etc which brings a lump to the throat. Now Uh, The flaw of nationalism was pointed out quite early by uh, Lord Acton in the late 19th century. Um, John Stuart Mill um, had been um, very enthusiastic about the nation, and he had no time for people like the Bretons, uh, who didn't speak French and didn't want to be part of La France but they were all being dragged into it against, to the nation. And uh, John Stuart Mill said it's very good for these Bretons. He said they are a, a, a savage remnant uh, of, a, of, a, of a dying tribe to stop sulking on their uh, dismal rocks and join the modern world. Lord Acton took a, a slightly different view. He said that the emphasis in the nation-state on ethnicity, language, and culture would mean that people who did not fit the national profile uh, would find themselves to be very vulnerable. He said with horrifying prescience that in some cases they could be either enslaved or even exterminated. And it wasn't long after that that the atheistic young Turks massacred uh, over a million Armenians in order to create a purely Turkic state. And of course, the Holocaust uh, was a, a tip was an example of, of what, where that kind of concentration on the folk, the Volk, can lead. Uh, and in some cases, some ways, you can almost see that the uh, ethnic minority uh, can has rep- can replace what you st- we call the heretics in the more religiously articulated states. Uh, the, often, these heresies, uh, like the Cathars or the uh, the early, uh, we're, were were more about were, we're deeply concerned with political matters rather than just theological matters. Uh, they would look at the rich clergy, a lot of these people, and say, how does this coincide with, the, with Jesus in the Gospels who said, give everything you have to the poor? Uh, th- so there was often a political challenge there as well as a religious one. And uh, the ethnic minority has... Uh, uh, our in- in- inability to tolerate the ethnic minority has been the... Um, Uh, the the Achilles heel of the nation-state. No human system is perfect. Uh, We we mustn't ever get into the idea. It comes in religious terms and idolatry to imagine that we've devised the perfect system. Now, um, it also had an influence on suicide-bombing nationalism. Robert Pape of the University of Chicago, as many of you will know, Uh, did a survey of all suicide attacks that had occurred since uh, 1980 and between 1980 and 2004 and concluded that uh, really Islamic fundamentalism or indeed any religion, he said, had anything much to do with it. He pointed out that in Lebanon during the 1980s, where there were about 35 suicide attacks, uh... Seven of them were uh, uh, committed by uh, Shiite Muslims, three by Christians, and I think the majority by secular socialist Batists coming in from Syria. Uh, the Tamil Tigers are said to have been the inventors of the, uh, the suicide attack. Uh, and uh, they have no time for religion at all. And until the Iraq war, they held the undisputed record for the number of suicide attacks. What Pape said that they have in common, all these, they occur when uh, a people feel that the territory that they regard as their homeland has been invaded by a militarily superior state. And that they have therefore to re- resort to these unconventional means. It's a sense of the integrity of the state. And if you listen to the Hamas videos, um, they, they elide very easily. It's that cocktail that I was talking about earlier, as you elide between uh, secular nationalism. Devotion to Allah, etc. One will start. One starts off saying, "Today he's going to meet the Lord of the Worlds," and then he segues into uh, remembering all the uh, the martyrs who died for Palestine, including the secular uh, martyrs who died in the pre-state days. Um, and then, of course, for the liberation of the homeland. This is a modern nationalism which has, no, of course, no roots in the Middle East. This was a, uh, something that we have happily bequeathed to them. And, um, and then into a third world. Uh, scenario where they hope that their action will be a beacon of hope for all the oppressed people of the world, and then back to Allah again, the, the, mingling quite unselfconsciously between these three, uh, these three enthusiasms, three passions. And yet, uh, we're seeing the inadequacy of the nation-state in our globalized world. Uh, the migrants, for example, this we 've got to expect this now uh, in a globalized world. People are going to move around uh, and uh, ha- we're, 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 with our concentration on the nation and you know you notice during elections it 's all about our national prosperity, our economy, ah this ah that not. Fully realising, as economists tell us, that our economies are so profoundly interconnected that when stocks fall in one part of the world, the markets plummet all around the globe that day. Uh, We all face the same environmental catastrophe. Uh, What happens in Afghanistan today can have repercussions here tomorrow. And now we have the migrants pouring in in a sort of karmic reversal, it's almost a reversal of the scramble for Africa in the 18th century. Now we've got the scramble for Europe, uh, and uh, here I think we can take a leaf out of the out of the way some in the conventional religions thought about the world. They all talk about compassion and say that that the. the, the the Golden Rule, which has been developed by all uh, by all religious traditions without exception, um, never treat others as you would not like to be treated yourself. As Confucius put it, do not impose on others what you yourself do not desire. That could have been a very good maxim for policymakers in uh, the colonial period or even today, do not impose on others what you yourself would not desire. Um, and um, they all insisted, however, that you cannot confine your benevolence to your own group. You must have what one of the Chinese sages called ai, concern for everybody. And these people who developed the Golden Rule were not just a lot of uh, sort of hippies sitting in a, pre- a Pleasant groves doing yoga, (laughs) uh, though some of them did do yoga as well, uh, they were living in societies like our own where violence had reached an unprecedented crescendo. And as uh, the Chinese particularly said, if we do not treat, you must treat another's state as you treat your own. If the lords of the world uh, treated, observed Yan Ai, they would not go to war because you would not like to see your own state invaded. Um, You had uh, love the stranger, says Leviticus. That word love needs decoding. Uh, We've devalued the world so much, the word so much, you know. I'd love a gin and tonic, you know. uh, didn't you love that movie? Or it's all connected with sort of emotion and sort of sentiment. Uh, But uh, in the ancient Near East, when Leviticus said love the stranger, Leviticus is a legal text. It has no time for sentiment. Uh, It was uh, the word hesed, loyalty, uh, translated love, uh, was a legal term used in the ancient Near East in international treaties where two kings would promise to love each other. Former enemies, they would now love each other. That didn't mean they fell, fell into one another's arms, but that they would look out for one another practically, give one another practical support, even if this went against our own short-term interests and be there as an ally for them in time of trouble. That is the kind of, uh, and Jesus extended that, said, love your enemies. And that is the kind of love we now have to give our enemies today, breaking out of this. Uh, solid